Thank you, guys. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn back to uh, Proverbs chapter 23. And uh, we're going to kind of continue today. I kind of broke the verses up because so, there's so much material in here. I wanted to um, take a couple of different weeks and, and, and then tie it all together. But we're going to continue today with uh, the great principles on uh, your personal relationship with the Lord and uh, developing your friendship with Him, your, your walk with Him. You know, a pastor, he has many things he wants to accomplish with a church. I'm sure, I know I do. I'm sure that uh, most guys do. And, uh, you know, last week we talked about uh, short-term and long-term. And obviously there's things that, that I want to give you short-term, uh, things that I want to help you with, things that you need to fix in your life short-term. Uh, that will get you to a long-term solution, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I, I look at you, I look at the church and my responsibility in that aspect. But I can honestly say, you know, um, my long-term goal, my long-term goal for all of you, and, my, and I take it as my responsibility to <clears throat> at least give you the opportunity. I, I can't make you do it, but, um, you know, Second John chapter 1, verse 8 talks about the fact that we should look to the things that, or around us, and we do, that we receive a full reward. And that's really my goal for all of you. Uh, if you're a member of this church, or you just are coming to this church, or you take anything that we say here seriously, uh, honestly, quite honestly, there is absolutely no reason for you not to wind up at the uh, judgment seat of Christ with a, not a full reward. Uh, the Bible has everything that you need. We have every tool here that you need to have. The preaching and the teaching, I, I try to balance it as best I can to give you everything that you need to cover all of the bases. And today I, I want to walk you through some things. I think we're going to add to last week and we'll go back and forth a little bit and kind of put things together. But you'll remember last week uh, we saw and examined one of the most valuable passages in all the Bible on, on the right relationship with the Lord. And I showed you that any relationship with God has to be built on two fundamental doctrines of the Bible. Without these two in your life, without understanding how to put these in. Now, let me say this. I realize when you get saved, you don't really understand these things. I get it. I realize that when you become a young Christian, and some of you, when you came into this church, and you, you, know, you haven't had a lot of good Bible teaching Nobody expects you to be up to speed. Uh, nobody expects you, I certainly don't, expect you to understand uh, these doctrines. Uh, but I think there needs to begin a process in your life that you get there. I don't expect you to understand it all, but in time, uh, you do need to understand because the fundamental doctrines of the Bible are the key. And this is what's wrong with Christianity today. And I know I speak a lot about it, but that's okay. I'm going to continue to it. I'm going to tell you what's wrong today is that we're trying to build a relationship with God without really knowing who He is. And it's not working for people. Uh, we're going through all of the motions. We go to church. We have a Bible. We, we, we sing songs. We do all of those things that Christians are supposed to do. But those things don't give you a relationship with Him. And we live in a world today, a Christian world today, where God's people, bless their hearts, they're trying to build, uh, go through their Christian life without really understanding the one that they should be 
cultivating that relationship with. And those two fundamental doctrines, first of all, was the doctrine of biblical worship. What does it really mean to worship God? And the second one was the doctrine of biblical prayer. These two inward activities, these things, two things that are inside, start inside you, these are the most messed up doctrines in the church today. And uh, I, I preached a message a while back. We've talked about it on Bible study. I know I taught it in Bible Institute or probably uh, in people ministry. I talked about the seven things that we lose when we lose our Bible. When the, when, when, when the world or Christianity or scholarship or whoever tells you that you don't have an absolute perfect Bible that you can not only bet your soul on, but you can take through every day of your life to find the answers to life. When you lose that, when somebody takes that from you, then you lose seven things. And I've talked about it many, many times, and my goal is not to go over those today, but two of the things that you lose is an understanding of biblical worship and an understanding of biblical prayer. And, uh, and I showed you that both of these have uh, really uh, have nothing to do with what you do. It doesn't have anything to do with where you go or, or with the position of your body or if you fold your hands or not or close your eyes. It has nothing to do with any physical location. But rather both prayer and worship have to do inwardly with who you really are. Inwardly, your personal, intimate worship and prayer life with the best friend you'll ever have. And you can have a service. You can call it a worship service. You can have, you can have corporate prayer, single prayer, all kinds of prayer. I mean, you can, you, can, you can do whatever you want to do. All those things that are spiritual but where those two doctrines end and begin is in your heart and inside you. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, that's a great chapter because the Lord takes the task, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he tears them apart, a whole chapter dedicated to ripping them to shreds. And these were people who... who who feigned that they believed in God. They, 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 told, they were the leaders of Israel, the nation of Israel. They were the spiritual leaders, and yet they were taking the people down the wrong road. And in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord Jesus himself called them whited sepulchers. You know what a sepulcher is? It's a tomb. And he called them whited sepulchers. He says, you know what? You're painted white and you look beautiful on the outside. But then he said, on the inside, you're full of dead man bones. And that's basically where I'm afraid it's at today. Last week, we talked about verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. And it was, it was built around getting the wisdom of God in your heart that causes him to rejoice in your life. Last week, I, I gave you the definitive verse on the idea of worship. And it's found in John chapter 4, verse 24. This is the definitive verse. And it says that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must. Not if you want to. Not if you can find an alternative. It says God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, spirit and truth are the two key words there, and obviously, the spirit that he's talking about is your spirit, my spirit, the human spirit. 
It shows me that worship, real biblical worship, doesn't start with a service. It doesn't start with taking up an offering and worshiping God. It doesn't even start with music. It starts in your heart. It starts with your spirit and God's truth. And when you take the spirit of man and match it up to the truth of the Word of God, now you have worship. You cannot worship God without you exercising your spirit into the truth of the Word of God. It's impossible. Now, i got to tell you, the magnitude of that verse to me is overwhelming. The implication of that verse and what it's saying to modern day Christianity, it, it, it just boggles my mind. And I know, uh, I know this is not popular today. But spirit and truth, the Bible way, your spirit and God's truth are the two absolutes for your fundamental relationship with God through your worship. Now, let's just, okay. I know we're a cult. I get it. I've confessed it. It's on tape going out to the world. I'm a cult leader. You're a cult follower. And they're mixing up the Kool-Aid right now in the back, and you're going to feed it to you as you go out today. Bottom line is this. We're a cult because, get this, we're a cult because we believe that God was not only God enough to inspire the Word of God, but then God was God enough to preserve it. Now, if that makes me a cult, I'm a cult. Because inspiration without preservation, you know what this is? What is that, Caleb? You're you're, you're educated. It's a zero! (laughs) Do that to me. Do it to me. That's a zero. See, I know. What's wrong with you? Inspiration without God's preservation means nothing. What is it? What, what, what does it matter? What, what, what do we care if God, someplace in the distant past, inspired the Word of God if you can't get it today? Now, if that makes us a cult, you guys got that Kool-Aid ready yet? Because the magnitude of what I just gave you is unbelievable. So let's pretend for a moment. Let's pretend that we are right. Forget us. Let's pretend that Dean Bergen was right. You know who Dean Bergen was? Dean Bergen back in the latter part of the 1800s when Westcott and Hort were putting out the RSV and putting their critical apparatus together for the Greek text from City of the Vaticanus, it was Dean Bergen who single-handedly took them on and devastated them and proved they were liars. Let's just say he was right. Let's just begin, it's just kibbish for a minute. Let's say that Robert Dick Wilson was right. You know who Robert Dick Wilson was? He was the language expert and teacher at Princeton Theological Seminary back around the turn of the century. He spoke 45 languages. He was fluent in Greek and Hebrew and every language that the Bible was written in before 800 A.D. He was an incredible. He wrote and did the work. He wrote a book 
that says, is higher criticism scholarly? And higher criticism, he's referring to the men who would read the Bible and then criticize the Bible and tear it apart. And he wrote the standing work, never been, never been refuted, never even been attempted to. Is higher criticism scholarly? Let's just say he was right. He did the work on the Old Testament that is unparalleled. You couldn't find 50 guys today and put them together that could even carry his shoes. How about David Gregory? Math professor at Yale in 1710. He did a work on the King James Bible and the coming of Christ that went 650,000 words. Never been refuted. Never even been challenged. Let's just say he was right. We'll just pretend he was. Let's pretend that Wilbur Pickering was right. Let's pretend that J.J. Ray, who wrote the book on the King James Bible, was right. Let's pretend that Clarence Larkin, who really set up fundamentalism past the 1900s, let's just say that he was right. Let's say that J. Frank Norris knew what he was doing when he split from the Southern Baptist Convention because they jumped the King James Bible, started his own Bible, and set up the standard in the future that you and I have a Bible today that is the absolute perfect Word of God. Let's just say for a moment that Dr. Ruckman was right, who got it, picked it up after J. Frank Norris. Let's just say that Mel Sabaka, my father and the Lord, who got it from Ruckman, Ruckman got it from Norris, he gave it to me. Let's just say that he was right. Now, this is a terrible thought, because if all those guys were right, then i got to be right. And I gave it to you, and this is even worse. That means you got to be right. Let's just pretend for a moment that all that is true. Let's pretend that whoever wrote Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, knew what they were talking about when they said that the devil had a seed, and God had a seed, and then told you the seed was the Word of God. Because if they're true, and that verse is saying what it's saying, then if you don't have the absolute perfect Word of God as God's truth, and you've got some other mad magazine translation, you can't even have biblical worship. Because it has to be your spirit in God's truth. And if you've lost the truth, you've lost the very concept of worship. And that would say today, around this country, around the world, hey, I know it's not popular. I know I'm going to get a lot of thumbs down on the little deal over there. I love that. But I'm telling you right now, if that is true, that what is going on in Christianity today, listen to me, I don't want you to misunderstand me, is absolutely worthless. And you have no worship. There is no real worship with God in our lives. That's why, listen to me, that's why we claim to be saved, but we ever can get victory in anything in our lives. The second fundamental thing you have to have is prayer. Now, most people would think uh, that, you know, that, oh, there's a place in the New Testament that's a definitive passage. No, no, no. The definitive passage on prayer in the Old Testament is Leviticus, in the Bible is Leviticus chapter 10. That's where prayer starts. Now, you can add to that Exodus chapter 17 and see how it works. But if you want to find out fundamentally what prayer is and why, 
Our prayer life today is as worthless as our worship. Oh, hey, I know it's not popular. You got people all over the place claim to be saved, probably are. And they talk about what great prayer warriors they are. They talk about that. They give seminars on prayer. Well, the greatest seminar on prayer you ever take is found in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And it tells us that prayer starts and stays with your personal walk and relationship with Christ. And in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, you've got the great biblical concept of strange fire being offered to God. Let's talk about that for just a moment. I'll read it. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And they went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they, and, and they died before the Lord. Now let's talk about the strange fire. Let me explain something to you. That tabernacle back there in the Old Testament, it's an incredible study. And you're going to find that over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16, it says that the, uh, that, uh, that the man of God is to be perfect, truly furnished. Now, I know all the new Bibles take the word truly out and put in the word thoroughly. And stupid Christians, they think, why, well, that's great, and there's nothing wrong with that. It completely destroys the doctrine. The word there is that you're not thoroughly, thoroughly furnished, you're truly furnished. It starts on the inside with you and works out. Verse got the right doctrine. Now, when you went into that tabernacle, uh, you'll notice that there was a brazen altar out there made of brass. Brass is the picture of God's judgment. And on that, it was a thing where, that, that's where they offered the sacrifice. Then you went inside the second section. Well, before you went in there, there was a laver of water over here. Kind of like a drinking fountain. Except nobody drank it. And, and it was over here. And then you walked in, and then when you came in, over here was a table that had, that had bread on it. They called it the showbread. Picture of the Word of God. Over here on this side was the, was the seven-pronged candlestick, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. And then up here, before you went into the Holy of Holies where the ark was, there was an altar of incense. And then the priest that went in there, he had a little censer. A little stick with a chain, and it had burning incense. Whenever he went, he turned that back and forth. Now, every one of those is a picture of something in your personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. When you walked into that tabernacle, into the inside part, it was completely black. There wasn't any light in there at all. The only light you had was the light off the golden candlesticks. Those golden candlesticks represent the Holy Spirit of God. And it's a picture that inside you, the only light that should permeate inside you is the light off of that golden candlestick, the Holy Spirit of God. On the other side was the table, fellowship, with six and six, twelve loaves of bread. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six. Sixty-six, picture of the Word of God. And when the priest was doing all of the work over there, complete darkness, only the light that he had... He had to walk around the table 
and work on it from this side. Because every time he got in front of the table, he blocked the light from the Holy Spirit of God and he couldn't do the work. Every time you get between the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God, you can't do the work. See how it works? Now, out there at the brazen altar, before you went in, there was a laver of water over here. And every time that priest would come out and go back in to do the Word of God, he had to wash his feet. Because the tabernacle had no floor. And so he would walk in and do the work. He'd come out, his feet would be dirty. So he'd walk over to the laver and he'd have to wash his feet every time he went in to do the work of God. That laver's a picture of the Word of God. And it's a picture of every time you start to do the work of God, you've got to get your feet clean with the water of the Word of God. And that fellowship stayed. Now over here in the corner, right before he went into the Holy of Holies, there was the altar of incense which in most Baptist churches has been turned into the altar of nonsense. But it had incense burning in it. That's a picture of your prayer life. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago how that when you talked about Christ, it was a sweet savor in the nostril of God? Well, that, that incense is a, is, a, is a smell that God... It was a picture of your prayer life going up before God. All this is a picture of the furnishings that should be inside you that this church... Excuse me, this cult is trying to build in you. And then the priest himself had the little, little, little uh, laver. And he put incense in that off of the altar of incense. And he'd walk around. That's a picture of your personal prayer life. Wherever you go, pray without ceasing. Now, these two guys lit things up in there, and God killed them. And they offered something called strange fire. And it's one of the most predominant, powerful doctrines or teachings anywhere in the Word of God. And it certainly is the answer why so many of God's people can't get squat going with God today. The fire that lit the golden candlesticks, type of the Holy Spirit. The fire that built, uh, that started the incense burning and the, and the incense in that labor that he carried around, that fire, that fire could only come from one place. That fire had to come off the brazen altar where the sacrifice was made. And it's a picture of you and me and my furnishings. And I'm telling you this, the reason why my prayer life is no good and your prayer life is no good and you can't get anything going to God is because we are offering strange fire. We're not. Every prayer you have, every moment of your life, every prayer because of your relationship with Him should go back to that brazen altar where He died on Calvary's cross for you. And if you start your prayer someplace else, you just offered up strange fire. So why well, didn't know that? It's because you're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 12 tells you that the fire had to come from the brazen altar. And if your prayer life, my prayer life doesn't start right there, that's why, may I be a little facetious, that's why for most Christians, the best day for you to get your prayer answered is Easter. Yeah. Because that's the only day you think about Him dying for you. 
It ought to permeate everything you think of. It ought to permeate everything you see. It ought to permeate everything. If somebody gave their life for you that you to survive, you'd think about them the rest of your life. Well, he did. He died on that cross. He paid the price. He was your sacrifice on that brazen altar. And when you want to have a relationship with him, fellowship with him, a friendship with him, and you're going to forget what he did for you, Now, in the Bible, one of the greatest doctrines on all of this and your relationship with Christ is found in the unknown doctrine called standing and state. Completely unknown today. And the failure of this teaching is what has made Christianity so absolutely confusing. In the doctrine of standing and state you will find that the church is divided into two aspects. You must understand these aspects. And again, I'm not saying, nor am I being critical. I'm just simply saying, if you just came here, you just got saved, or you're just getting plugged in, that's great. Don't go beat yourself up because you don't know these. You're finally in a place where now you can get it. And my advice to you is, don't waste any more time. Get it. The church is divided into two aspects. The church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant will be the physical walk and our physical work in life, the warfare of the believer, you and me, every day. That's the church militant. We're an army, onward Christian soldiers. Hold the fort for I am coming. That's the church militant. Then you have the church triumphant. The church triumphant is on the inside of you. That's the spiritual church, the body of Christ that you were born into the moment you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. Back in about 1490, there was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Savonarola. And Savonarola got saved. And he was a thorn in the Catholic church's side all of his life. He began to preach Salvation by the blood of Christ. He began to preach on all the corruption of Rome. And boy, it was corrupt at that point in time. And uh, he, he just let them have it. They tried to shut him up. The bishop offered him a, a red hat to make him a cardinal. So he would shut up. He refused the red hat of a cardinal and said, I'll take a red hat of blood. And he got one. Because he wouldn't shut up, because he wouldn't quit preaching, because he wouldn't quit winning people to Christ, and because he went against the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, they arrested him, they tortured him, and finally they burned him at the stake. And when he was there before they lit the fire, the Pope came over to him, stuck his finger in his face, and he said, Today I separate you from the church. Old Savonarola looked back and said, you may separate me from the church militant, but you'll never separate me from the church triumphant. For that solid piece of doctrine and theology, he would burn at the stake. You say, well, how? I, I didn't know anything about that. Savonarola knew about it in 1490. You're hanging out with the wrong crowd. Now, if I didn't know what we have was the right thing, I'd know it 
Any other way I know it by this. You can't steal my religion. You can't. Somebody says, well, I'll take your religion. You can't. Well, I'll, I'll take your hymnal and we'll, we'll burn them all up. I got the songs in my heart. Well, we'll take your Bible. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Well, we'll burn down the building and burn down your church. I'm the church. Well, we'll take all your beads and your candles. I didn't need them anyhow. Welcome to them. All I know, we'll kill your priest. You can't get to him. You can't take what I got. Now, your standing is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And you'll want to get this down if you're trying to actually, honestly build a relationship with him. Because you've got to have these. He says, Wherefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. See that? And rejoice in hope. Now, this is the day you got saved. Notice it says, peace of God. Excuse me, peace with God. In the book of Romans, when you find the term peace with God, it will always be dealing with you getting saved. The day you got saved, you made peace with God. You'll find places where it talks about peace of God. That's after you're saved. Once you get saved, you have peace with God. And once you get saved, now you have the peace of God. That's how it works. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 says, We stand in the grace of God. Your standing is that in Christ Jesus, you're perfect in His sight. When He came down and saved you, He separated you from the world. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit of God. And now you are perfect, seated in heavenly places with Him, and nobody can ever touch that. You have been saved. You have been sealed. And then you're seated. That's your standing in Christ. We have a song in our hymnal. I think it's on page 175. Standing on the promises. And everybody thinks that that means you're, you're, just, you're just standing on the promise. No. Whoever wrote that song understood that you're standing, your sinlessly perfection, your relationship with God that you can have because your soul has been sealed on the day of redemption. Your standing is based on those promises. Credible. Credible that God's people don't know that today. This is why the Bible says in first oh God's people sure do have a time of it. This is why the Bible says in first John chapter 3, verse 9, he that is born of God doth not commit sin. And all the scholars, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the great big wig preachers, they say, Oh, that can't be right. That has to be a mistranslation. Oh, you know, who that is born of God cannot commit does not commit sin. Why? 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 I know. We'll change that. We gotta get rid of that. We gotta put it down there where everybody can get it. Let's change it from he that is born of God does not commit sin. He that is born of God does not practice sin. That's much better. That's the stupidest thing you've ever put down in your life. You'd be better off to say he that's born of God don't know anything about sin. Putting down he that's born of God doesn't practice. Are you kidding me? I practice sin every day of my life and I'm saved. And you do too. You do too. Well, thank you. The front row does anyhow. We practice it all the time. You know why they changed it? Because they knew nothing about standing in state. 
And these are the guys that will teach you when you go to Bible college. Get your money back. The reason why the Bible says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, is because what got born of God in me wasn't my flesh, it was my soul, and it's sealed, and it's the day of redemption, and my soul cannot sin. That's my standing. Then you have your state. That's something else. Missouri, Ohio, or Pennsylvania, or wherever. Now your state, that's, that'll be the church militant. Where the standing is the church triumphant, your state then will be the church militant. That's your daily warfare. That's your daily battle in this life. The state of your fellowship with Him and your relationship and your friendship. How is that state this morning? How's the battle going for you? Are you on top of it today? And are you, are your, is your state of mind where you're one with Him and you're, you have the victory and you're just getting through it? And I know there's battles out there. We fall down, but you keep getting up. And you, today, you have the victory. Is that your state? The state of your fellowship. Philippians 4.11 says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned that whatsoever state I am, that with to be content. Now that's your definitive verse on state. Wherever you're at, whatever situation you're in, you're content with it. You know why? Because your state is your fellowship and the relationship and your friendship with God. So circumstances don't matter. Now this doctrine's taught, believe it or not, in the book of Leviticus. When I gave you the books of the Bible, all the breakdowns, I, I did Leviticus. And I told you that Leviticus is broken down into two sections. And the two sections represent standing and state. You know what the book of Leviticus is about, don't you? It's the priesthood. So what better, and you're a priest if you're saved this morning, so what better, what book would be better than to put down uh, the idea of a priesthood than the book of Leviticus showing you standing and state? So when you go from chapter 1 to chapter 11 of the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the theme of those 11 chapters are the way you get to God. And you'll find that the way you get to God is through sacrifice. There's your standing. You'll pick it up in chapter 12 and go to the end of the book in chapter 27, and you'll find in that the theme is the way with God will be your walk with God. There's your state. And you'll find out that standing in state is the basis for you understanding worship and, 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 and your prayer life. So understanding this doctrine is vital in having a working relationship with Christ. And I'm telling you right now, you may not have it now. You may not, you may not be where you want to be, but you can get there. But there has to become a process in your life. These things will form the foundation after salvation. They'll become the anchor point for your walk, your relationship, and your friendship with Christ. These two, worship and prayer, standing in state, will form the intimacy which forms the relationship which leads to the friendship. The Bible says, Proverbs 18, 24, Christ, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Bible says in Proverbs 17, 17, that a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And for most of God's people today, this concept's an illusion. 
It's an illusion. It used to be that only unsaved people have the problems that most of God's people have today. There was a time when God's people had their issues, but nothing like they have today. Today, God's people have the same problems that the world had back in the day that unsaved people have. You know what? Because something's wrong. And all of this is the reason. And and I'm sorry. I'm here to help you. I'm not mad at anybody. That all this is the reason for the struggle of God's people. And do you think I want God's people to struggle? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a church where everybody did what the Bible said? And in a perfect world, you know, that would be wonderful. But we don't live in a perfect world, and it's not going to happen. So God's people struggle with many things. They struggle with their salvation. Many of them struggle because they think they can lose it. I've had them talk to me about the fact that they don't think that they did it right when they got saved. And that comes down because they don't understand the doctrine of standing in state. They'll struggle with their inability to trust Him uh, in their own lives. Uh, they'll just not be able to walk by faith. They're always walking by sight. And that comes down to not following the great principle of Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. They'll have an inability to commit their kids to Him. They won't be able to give them to Him. And yet they forgot what Psalms chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3 says, that when you commit yourself and that you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, your leaf shall not wither. The guarantee, train up a child in a way he should go. All the issues of life that we say we give over to him, but we just keep taking them back, don't we? We can't take them to him, lay them at the foot of the cross, and leave them. And there's no rest in, in any of that. There's no rest because there's no friendship. There's no rest because there's no real relationship. There's no rest because there's no real biblical worship or prayer. We got this great smoke screen. We play this spiritual front all the time. I remember a day when all that preachers ever preached about were the soap operas on TV. Now God's people are living them every day of their Christian life. And we'll play the spiritual Christian, but inside we're miserable. There's no joy. There's no fruit. It's empty. And when it, it's, it, it, when it, 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 we've lost the idea of understanding God and understanding the Bible. So we're always dependent on something else or somebody else. And we're just miserable. And it comes out is that we're negative about everything. We see, we see God in nothing. We, there's no joy in anything. We don't like people. We don't like the ministry. We don't like this. We don't like that. We don't like, you know, it, it's just, that, that's, that's where Christianity is today. And last week I told you the key to getting God's wisdom into your heart to His rejoicing will be through your true fellowship. 1 John 1, 7 is, walking in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And today I want to build a bridge. I want to build a bridge from last week to this week and then to next week.
And we will add to last week and we'll develop our personal relationship with God just a little bit farther. Now it says in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 19 through 22, and this is where we're going to be today. It says, Hear thou, my son, and be wise, and guide thine heart in the way. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Hearken unto thy father that begot thee, and despise not thy mother when she is old. Bill Tillman, you're in the back. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing upon where we go from here? A full reward. I want you to have a full reward. Is that so wrong of me? Why, you get upset because I tell you the truth. Like I got some agenda to ruin your day? Yeah, I do. My agenda is one thing for you. And that is that you come away with a full reward. That's all I want. If you raised your kids and you never corrected them or never disciplined them or never had to deal with them or whip them, do you think that they would go through life with a full reward? They'd go through life with a full record. That's all I want for you. Uh, my goal is not to make your life miserable. You have made your life miserable. I'm trying to make it better. Don't blame me for it. Understanding, gaining a better understanding of the two aspects of God's church in our life. Church militant, church triumphant. Now verse 19 says, Hear thou my son and be wise and guide thine heart in the way. Now this is where we're going to start today. And there's four things listed here that show us the makeup of our personal relationship with Christ. And I want to just talk to you about them for a moment. The first thing he says in verse 19, he says, he says, he says, hear thou. You know, it, we go to church, we come to church, but I don't think we always hear what is said. We come to Thursday night Bible study, and I don't think we always hear what was said. And I think, you know, God's people today, they, they go to church every Sunday. They go, to, they go to everything that goes on throughout the week. The guy gets up in the pulpit and, and he, he talks about truth and he lays this out and lays this out. And yet God's people continually go and sit there and they listen, but they never hear. 
And I'm telling you, if you want to begin to build a relationship with God, you're going to have to begin to hear what he's saying to you. And a lot of what he's saying to you and you got to hear isn't what's going in your ear, but what's in your heart when the Holy Spirit of God starts to tap you on the shoulder. That's where you got to hear it. And a lot of times we block, we block that out by blocking out listening so we don't ever have to hear. You know, the nation of Israel, they had rejected all that God had done for them. They came in Matthew, and and the Lord just gave them every opportunity. He did everything by the book he was supposed to do to manifest himself to the nation of Israel. And they rejected it. And over and over and over and over again, and finally in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, uh, they refused to hear what he was saying And he said, therefore, I speak unto you in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And the reason why so many of God's people, and I say it again, I know some of you are just getting started. I know that. We're here for you. You can get there. That's our goal, full reward. But I'm saying, the reason why so many of God's people can't ever get to the place in their life where they understand God, the Word of God, and what God is trying to do in their life is because they don't hear. They don't see what God's doing. You know, there's always people that that complain about everything in church. And and I've been in churches like that. And I know that there are churches that got a lot of issues. But you know what? In any church, there's always something that is good that's going on. Why do God's people always just want to focus on the, the negative stuff? You know, you know, do you go through, maybe you do, do you go through life just in a miserable person because everything is, 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 you look at all the negative things in life? When it's your birthday and they bring you a present, do you say, ah, that's not what I wanted? They bring you a cake. Nah, I like chocolate icing. They put all the candles on it. Ah, that's too many candles. Remind me how old I am. Well, I brought you this really nice shirt. Oh, I wanted a new car. Is that the way we go through life? And he said in Matthew chapter verse 5, he says, he that, to Israel, he that had ears to hear, let him hear. And Israel never did hear. They never did. Now they got to go through the tough time and the tribulation to begin to hear. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 6, when he's talking to the church, you know what he said? He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear to us. Let us hear. And when we don't hear, then we have to go through our tribulation. The second thing he says is, my son. Well, there's that relationship of intimacy that we started last week. You know, my dad was my hero. He died when I was 20 years old. But I watched him all of my life, and I I learned so much from him. He loved to hunt and fish. He was a crack shot. He was a fisherman. Oh, he loved to fish. Hard worker. Worked all of his life in a steel mill. Had a good value system. And, you know, when I I used to watch him go to work, you know, and and I used to think that when I grow up, I want to be just, just like him. You know, uh, my dad, uh, and I got a lot of my dad's traits. My dad never met a stranger. My dad's favorite word, and this is telling on me, but my dad's favorite word when he talked to people was buddy. Hey, buddy. You're my buddy. I just picked that up. I'd say that to you, and I don't even like some of you. (laughs) Just kidding. 
I'll never forget one of the lasting moments is when I left for the Army. I said goodbye, you know, my dad took me to the bus station. And we were quiet all the way there, you know. Little did I know in just a few short years he'd be emaciated by lung cancer and, and, and pass away. But we stood there waiting for the bus to load and we were quiet, you know, and, and uh, you know, it was tough for him. I mean, you know, the Vietnam War was raging and for all they could have known, it could have been the last time that they ever saw me alive. And my dad, when time to get on the bus, I hugged my dad, he shook my hand, and, and uh, my dad told me that he loved me, and I told him I loved him. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to grow up to be like him. And yet Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, it says that we should grow up into Christ. It says, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things. It doesn't say grow up unto him. It doesn't say grow up to be like him. It says actually grow up to be him in all things. I got a question for us, all of us. As a Christian, when we ever grow up, will we ever get to the place that we're not snagged by everything in life that snags us? Every relationship. I mean, I've seen men and women look at a relationship that was a dead end of the street you ever saw in your life, and yet they just let that thing snag them. You know why? Because you're growing up into somebody else instead of him. Then the third thing, he says, hear my son and be wise and guide thine heart. Now that's a reference to our free will process. You know, you have to decide you're going to follow Christ. He didn't make you get saved, and he won't make you follow him. You'll have to count the cost. You'll have to look at that brazen altar, let it mean something to you, and then you'll have to decide that you're going to follow him. I, I learned many years ago, this is a great principle of life, and I've, and, I've, and I've lived by it. I've followed it. I believe it. I, I, I think it's the source of many, many people's issues and problems. But I learned something. You only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. And it's true of anything. You can join whatever club you want to join. You can do this. You can do that. Um, but you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. Especially in, in churches. You know, I have people all of my time. Well, you know what? I just... Uh, I just, you know, I just, you just, you know, I just, you only get out of it what you put into it. Bible says, he that hath friends must show himself to be friendly. It's just a true stable of life. And life there will be filled with crossroads. And you're going to have to stand there and choose, am I going to go this way or am I going to go that way? From a young man that some of you kids are right now to a senior citizen, like some of you are. You're constantly going to be faced with a road that you should not go down. And every day of your life, every time, and listen to me, you'll choose the right path based on, one, your personal relationship with him, and you'll guide your heart accordingly. And when you love him more than life, you'll never betray him with your life. And it's just that simple. You get to choose. 
I come here, you come here, I come and preach to you, I preach a good range of things for you. My goal, I've already told you, to get a full reward. I'll deal with any problem that you have. I'll help you any way I can. Nobody's going to hurt you here. You can have whatever you want, do whatever you want, rest, stand up, fight, whatever you want to do. But it's your choice. And in anything in Christianity, as in anything in life, you're only going to get out of this place what you're willing to invest into it. You're not willing to invest anything, you're not going to get anything out of it. Then the fourth thing. He says, Hear thou my son, guide thine heart. And then he says, In the way. Now that will be God's way versus our own way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That term, that concept, the way, is taught all the way through the Bible. Genesis chapter 24, verse 27 says, I being in the way, the Lord led. That's not getting in the way of the Lord and letting him push you through life. That is getting in God's way in your life. Now, in the Bible, along with the doctrine of salvation, you will find the doctrine of repentance. And again, unknown today. And I just need to tell you this. There is no salvation without repentance. There just isn't. Repentance is simply ceasing at the time of salvation going your way and start a new life going his way. We get the idea the Bible is about you conforming yourself to it. It will never be about it conforming itself to you. It just won't happen. And most people today think it means that uh, uh, you're sorry. You know, preacher talks about repentance. Well, sure, I'm sorry. Repentance is not sorry. I mean, repentance is more than that. Repentance is you turn a complete different direction. I've known lots of people who were sorry. I knew a drunk driver that was sorry he killed some people, but he didn't stop drinking. No, no. Repentance is a change of direction. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it talks about that, God, it, that it repented the Lord that he had made man. And so everybody says, was God sorry he made man? Was God, was God he, he was sorry that he made No, no. It means that he had made man, and now he repented that he made him, and he's going to change and go another direction. He's going to kill them all. He's going to drown them. Repentance is a change in direction. And when you got saved, you were going your way, and then repentance through salvation is now you're going another way. The definitive verse on repentance, again, back Exodus chapter 32, verse 12. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Now here it comes. Turn, turn, turn. The word turn. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Then the Bible defined repent is to turn. Bible says in Romans chapter 11 verse 28, the gifts, oh how many times? People do have a time of it. The gifts and calling of God to Israel are without repentance. And somebody said, does that mean Israel doesn't have to get right with God? Does that mean Israel doesn't have to repent? No, what it's saying is there that under the covenant of Abraham, God set a direction he was going to go with Israel, and he's not going to repent or turn from that direction. People do have a time of it. 
Now, I say all this, and I'm tired. I'm sure you get tired of hearing me saying, but the price of learning is repetition. Today, people claim to be saved. They go through all the motions. They say the prayer, but they never change anything about themselves. There's no direction change. And they claim to get saved, and yet they keep going the same old way, keep doing the same old thing. Now, that may, that may work in the Laodicean church, but when it comes to the Bible, that's not how it works. Without doctrine, salvation becomes a very dangerous thing. Doctrine will keep your emotions out of it. Doctrine will put salvation right where it is, in the confines of the truth of God's Word. And if your salvation will be impossible without a biblical repentance, that will set you on the right way. You simply, you know, and, 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 and where, did, where did we get the idea because with the doctrine of repentance, the doctrine of salvation, comes the doctrine of separation. When you got saved, God separated you. I mean, understanding God is understanding that God will always divide first before He does anything else. He separates. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, you don't go four verses in the Bible where it says God, God divided the light from the darkness. Four verses. And he just told you that the rest of the Bible is going to be divided up versus light and darkness. And your life today, my life today is divided, light versus darkness. Which way are you going to go? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. He divides. God will divide first in everything He does. In Genesis 2, verse 3, what God divided the seventh day from the rest of the week. When He brought Israel out of Egypt, Exodus chapter 12, as a separated nation, He divided them from all the other nations. When He called Abraham out in Genesis 11 and 12, He separated him. He divided him from their family. When he established the law in the Old Testament, he set up a priest class and he divided that class from the rest of the tribes. And in the New Testament, at the time of salvation, he will divide your soul from your flesh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, and he separates you. Now you have an old nature and a new nature. After salvation, once you get saved, now you have been sanctified. What does that mean? You've been set apart through your repentance. Now you are separated. You're divided from the world, or you're supposed to be. You see, here's the problem. We live in a Christianity in a time today where everybody wants to just get together when God's business is separating. Now maybe you can begin to see what the real issues are today. Churches want no doctrine. They want to take Baptist off their name because to be a Baptist, you have to believe some things that will separate you. That's not a bad thing. And they want to get everybody together. And they want to build a mega church that, oh, look at this. We got a great, great, great mega church. Look at our church. A church is never a building, and a church is never a group of people. A church is simply whatever it is based on what it believes by doctrine. I remember years ago, 
Sabaka and I were going someplace, and the church had a congregation of 10,000 people. This was back in the mid-70s, so it was pretty big back then. And we walked out, and, and somebody said, what do you think, Mel? And he said, just because you have a crowd on Sunday doesn't mean you have a church. Because a big crowd don't make a church. It's what you believe on the inside. Bible Christianity will never get You'll never get the purpose in your life till it first divides you. I mean, check it out. God will, when you got saved, God divided you from the world. Then 2 Peter 1.5 says that you add some things to your faith. And then Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says after that, He begins to multiply things in your life. So He divides you first, then He adds some things in your life, and then He multiplies based on that. The devil just does the opposite. The devil will add some things to your life first, all the world, all your friends, all your parting. Then he'll multiply that. Your old flesh won't have enough and keep getting more. And then you know what he'll do? He'll separate you from, divide you from everything that's good. That's how it works. Just how it works. Now look at the next two verses here quickly. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. Now you can, obviously these are two good verses to deal with drinking. And uh, they are uh, great true verses that if you want to preach on alcohol or whatever, that would be a place to go. But in our text, they represent The word of God that you and I as God's people should hear as a son, be wise, take it into our hearts, and then go the right way and stay away from those things in the world. Let his Holy Spirit of God guide you, guide me, and stay in the way of God and not in the way of the world, because that's the way the world will take you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? They're saved and unsaved. And what communion hath? Here it comes. Light with darkness. Communion means togetherness. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Now Christ, we know who that is. Belial is the Old Testament name for the devil. Or what part hath he that believeth, there's a saved person, with an infidel, there's an unsaved person. And what agreement hath the temple of God, there's your body as a Christian, with idols, there's an unsaved person. For ye are the temple of the living God, and as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, verse 17, come out from among them, and be ye, here it is, separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Then there's no fellowship with God till you separate yourself from the world. It's how did we, it's so simple. How did we ever get the idea that we could actually believe that as a Christian, we could have one foot in church and one foot in the world? Where did that come from? Amos 3 3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? You can't. 1 John 1 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You can't. And Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated 
under the gospel of God. Now there's the problem right there. Paul was separated from the world and then he was separated to the gospel. God's people today may get separated from the world, but they never get separated to something. And if you want to have a relationship with God and a fellowship with God and a friendship with God, then you got to get in tune in His way. And that way is you separate yourself from the world and then you separate yourself under the gospel. And God's people today are trying to do both. And it won't work. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and mammon. So when you get saved, you got sanctified. You got divided based on your repentance and a new way now you're going to go in life. Verse 22, and here, here's some really good advice. Hearken unto thy father that begot thee and despise not thy mother when she is old. Now, inspirationally, that's good advice for any kid in our church or anybody. The importance of having parents in your life that you listen to. Your parents aren't always going to be right. But you know what? They're always going to be your parents. And they're the authority that God put into your life to help you through life. The importance of parents in your life and the importance of good parents in your child's life. But in our context, it will be a reference to me as a son of God and my heavenly father. And the wisdom and instruction that he gives me and my hearkening to it and listening to what he says. Most of God's children don't listen to God any more than your children listen to you. Maybe that's the reason. Now the mother here, and I get it, Galatians chapter 4 verse 26 tells us that New Jerusalem is the mother of us all. I understand that. But here in the reference, in the context, this is a reference to Israel, who was the woman in Revelation chapter 12 who gave birth to Christ, and our salvation comes from her, John 4, 22. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that the very oracles of God, the Word of God, come from the Jew. That, a, a, a verse that references me as God's child and the ability to learn from Christ in the New Testament and then learn from God and how He deals with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Two tremendous aspects. You learn from Christ in the New Testament how to deal with the church, how to live your life, and then you watch God in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel and make the parallels back and forth. You got it. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. Israel is 4,000 years old as we speak. And my, 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 there are many lessons that we can learn. Look at Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Many lessons that we can learn. And the parallels of what Israel did with God and His Word and the issues they faced because of their disobedience are unbeatable. And I'm telling you, I can learn all about my own relationship with God by looking and, and observing uh, his, their relationship with God. After you get saved, you need to go to work. No question about that. The moment you get saved, you need to go to work. Now, most churches would take the statement I just say and says that that means that we put you into the work of the ministry. Get you here, get you there, put you in the nursery, get you to do this, get you to do that. And that's, and that's, and that's where uh, you need to wind up at some point in your life. But the first work you need to do will be the work of building your own personal relationship with God. That's the only work you need right now. You can come and do things and observe things and be part of things, but your main focus, the work right now after you're saved, or you're just a young Christian putting it all together, 
You need to work on building the right relationship, the right fellowship, and the right friendship with Christ by getting here all the tools that you need. And I realize many of you go out and do things and help people, and you learn from that. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's all a process. Our discipleship lessons is where we start. And I wrote those many, 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 many years ago. And we have today ten lessons in, that, in those discipleship lessons. And you might think that you're done, and I tell people this all the time, you might think that if you're done, if you did one lesson a week, you could be done in ten weeks. And I tell people all the time, you're not done when you get to lesson 10. Because the lessons are just a means to an end. There are four goals within the concept and the scope of our discipleship program. You're not done when you hit lesson 10. You're done when these four goals are accomplished in a person's life. And those four goals, number one, it's simply establishing the person that you're discipling, that brand new person, establish them in the Word of God. Give them the basic fundamentals. The second goal is establish them into our church. Let him know what all is going on and help them be the shoehorn that they can fit in wherever God wants them to be. The third thing is to establish them with other believers. Take them around. They get to know everybody. You get invited to this or invited to that. You go here. You come to this. And you make the circle. You get in a prayer group up there. You change and you meet all the different people. And then the fourth one is to establish them in the ministry. There's three things that we do in your own personal relationship before we even consider putting you into the work of the ministry. Because the greatest work you have to build is your own personal relationship with Him. Some people will disciple, take a year to go through it. Some people take eight or nine months. I've seen it myself. You disciple someone and take them through in 10 or 12 weeks and you miss something along the way. And in doing discipleship, we, we build some things in you. We establish you. We want you to begin that fundamental, basic understanding of basic Bible doctrine that's going to lead to your relationship. And once you get through with that, if you want, then we have discipleship too. That's another level up. We talk about the seven things that changed the day you got saved. It adds to and builds on top of that. We teach doctrine. We give you everything that you need because my overall goal for you in everything that we do, and I have many sub-goals, things I want to do. Yeah, I want you to learn the Bible. I want you to know the Bible. I want you to, I get that. But my long-term goal for everybody in this room is that you might receive a full reward. And there is absolutely no reason that you won't unless you choose not to. So last week and this week, we talked about the key to understanding a real relationship with God. The concept of worship, the concept of prayer, the concept of standing and state. All of those things that show you that the real relationship, the real work that you have. And Philippians chapter 1 says, at the day of salvation, he hath begun a good work in you. That good work is the fellowship that he wants to expand into every aspect of your life as you grow up into him and being everything that he wants you to be. And our goal here is to help you, to give you the tools, to be here for whatever you need, whatever your struggles are, whatever answers you cannot find to life. 
Together we'll find those answers and move through and help you become everything that God wants you to be. That through your relationship, through your fellowship, and through your friendship, that you stand there before God with a full reward. I'm sure many of you watched the royal wedding this weekend. I was invited, but I couldn't make it. <laughs> I got to tell you, and I try to find something spiritual and everything. I wanted to see it because they went, got married in the church that Henry VIII started because he wanted to divorce his wife. We talked about a couple weeks ago. I knew it would be a thing. But I got to tell you, this black guy that preached the deal, I mean, I know he's probably a baby sprinkling Episcopalian, but I'll tell you what, he had somewhere in his life, he had a little Baptist charismatic in him someplace. <laughs> and what was funny to me, you could see it. I never saw more kings and queens and potentates squirming in their seats because they expected a dry, old, boring, lethargic, and he was getting too close. He was getting down about the love of Jesus. I mean, he was, I mean, it's like this normally. Oh, we thank you for this wonderful event today. The Queen of England and the King and all the royal host. What a lovely day of this carnation, of this wedding, that we can all just savor and thank the Almighty God of the universe for blessing us with his presence. No, no. Jesus has got the love for you. And, he, and look, the queen's down there going. <laughs> Prince Charles is going. And I thought, if you're squirming now because some tin horn preacher is getting close to your panic button, what are you going to do in the day when the holy eyes of a holy God pierce down through your naked soul? Short term and long term. Let's have prayer. We'll be dismissed. There'll be no, as you know, there'll be no meeting because we're going to go down there. If you want to switch over and help, that would help. Please take time to sign up for the, uh, 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 the picnic today because we've got to get everything worked out this week. Ladies, we'll be in contact with you next week. You'll get all your stuff. Only one guy told me he was going to cook, so I guess it's just me and you, pal, but we'll get it done. Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and I love you so much. Thank you for today. Thank you for the truth of your word for these good people who I believe, with all of my heart, every one of them wants to have that relationship with you that only comes through the intimacy of knowing you and what you've done for us. May our prayer always be kindled on the brazen altar of Calvary. May our worship, may our prayer always be from the inward parts of us that are the secret parts between you and me where my prayer and my worship really live. May all the inward furnishings for these good people extend out to the outward manifestation of God in their life. And may we get our foot out of the world and put both of them in the Word of God. And may we be found faithful in these last days that these dear good people may meet you face to face for a full reward. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.